Section eight of Love Letters of Dorothy Osborne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. The Love Letters of Dorothy Osborne. Section eight. Letter thirty six. Sir, why are you so sullen? and why am I the cause? Can you believe that I do willingly defer my journey? I know you do not. Why, then, should my absence now be less supportable to you than heretofore? Nay, it shall not be long, if I can help it, and I shall break through all inconveniences, rather than deny you anything that lies in my power to grant. But by your own rules, then, May I not expect the same from you? Is it possible that all I have said cannot oblige you to a care of yourself? What a pleasant distinction you make when you say that tis not melancholy makes you do these things, but a careless forgetfulness. Did ever anybody forget themselves to that degree that was not melancholy in extremity? Good God, how you are altered! And what is it that has done it? I have known you when of all the things in the world you would not have been taken for a discontent. You were, as I thought, perfectly pleased with your condition. What has made it so much worse since? I know nothing you have lost, and am sure you have gained a friend that is capable of the highest degree of friendship you can propound that has already given an entire heart for that which she received. And tis no more in her will than in her power ever to recall or divide it. If this be not enough to satisfy you, tell me what I can do more. There are a great many ingredients must go to the making me happy in a husband. First, as my cousin Franklin says, our humours must agree, and to do that he must have that kind of breeding that I have had, and use that kind of company. That is, he must not be so much a country gentleman as to understand nothing but hawks and dogs, and be fonder of either than his wife, nor of the next sort of them, whose aim reaches no further than to be justice of the peace, and once in his life high sheriff reads no book but statutes, and studies nothing but how to make a speech interlarded with Latin that may amaze his disagreeing poor neighbours, and fright them rather than persuade them into quietness. He must not be a thing that began the world in a free school, was sent from thence to the university, and is at his furthest when he reaches the inns of court, has no acquaintance but those of his form in these places speaks the French he has picked out of old laws, and admires nothing but the stories he has heard of the revels that were kept there before his time. He must not be a town gallant, neither, that lives in a tavern and an ordinary, that cannot imagine how an hour should be spent without company unless it be in sleeping, that makes court to all the women he sees, thinks they believe him, and laughs and is laughed at equally nor a travelled monsieur whose head is all feather inside and outside that can talk of nothing but dances and duets, 
and has courage enough to wear slashes when every one else dies with cold to see him. He must not be a fool of no sort, nor peevish, nor ill-natured, nor proud, nor covetous. And to all this must be added that he must love me, and I him, as much as we are capable of loving. Without all this, his fortune, though never so great, would not satisfy me, and with it a very moderate one would keep me from ever repenting my disposal. I have been as large and as particular in my descriptions as my cousin Molly is in his of Moor Park, but that you know the place so well I would send it you. Nothing can come near his patience in writing it but my reading on it. Would you had sent me your father's letter, it would not have been less welcome to me than to you, and you may safely believe that I am equally concerned with you in anything. I should be pleased to see something of my Lady Carlyle's writing, because she is so extraordinary a person. I have been thinking of sending you my picture till I could come myself, but a picture is but dull company, and that you need not. Besides, I cannot tell whether it be very like me or not, though tis the best I ever had drawn for me, and Mr. Lilly, Lely, will have it that he never took more pains to make a good one in his life, and that was it, I think, that spoiled it. He was condemned for making the first he drew for me a little worse than I, and in making this better he has made it as unlike as t'other. He is now, I think, at my Lord Paget's at Marlow, where I am promised he shall draw a picture of my lady for me. She gives it me, she says, as the greatest testimony of her friendship to me, for by her own rule she is past the time of having pictures taken of her. After eighteen, she says, there is no face but decays, apparently. I would fain have had her accepted such as had never been beauties, for my comfort, but she would not. When you see your friend Mr. Henningham, you may tell him in his ear there is a willow garland coming towards him. He might have sped better in his suit if he had made court to me, as well as to my Lady Rithin. She has been my wife this seven years, and whosoever pretends there must ask my leave. I have now given my consent that she shall marry a very pretty little gentleman, Sir Christopher Yelverton's son, and I think we shall have a wedding ere it be long. My lady, her mother, in great kindness, would have recommended Henningham to me, and told me in a compliment that I was fitter for him than her daughter, who was younger, and therefore did not understand the world so well. That she was certain if he knew me he would be extremely taken, for I would make just that kind of wife he looked for. I humbly thanked her, but said I was certain he would not make that kind of husband I looked for and so it went no further. I expect my eldest brother here shortly, whose fortune is well mended by my other brother's death, so as if he were satisfied himself with what he has done. I know no reason why he might not be very happy, but I am afraid he is not. I have not seen my sister since I knew she was so, but sure she can have lost no beauty, for I never saw any that she had but good black eyes which cannot alter. He loves her, I think, at the ordinary rate of husbands, 
but not enough, I believe, to marry her so much to his disadvantage if it were to do again. And that would kill me were I as she, for I could be infinitely better satisfied with a husband that had never loved me in hopes he might, than with one that began to love me less than he had done. I am your faithful friend and servant, Dorothy Osborne. Letter 37 Sir, you say I abuse you, and Jane says you abuse me when you say you are not melancholy. Which is to be believed? Neither, I think, for I could not have said so positively, as it seems she did, that I should not be in town till my brother came back. He was not gone when she writ, nor is not yet, and if my brother Peyton had come before his going I had spoiled her prediction. But now it cannot be. He goes on Monday or Tuesday at farthest. I hope you did truly with me, too, in saying that you are not melancholy, though she does not believe it. I am thought so many times when I am not at all guilty on it. How often do I sit in company a whole day, and when they are gone, am not able to give an account of six words that was said, and many times could be so much better pleased with the entertainment my own thoughts give me, that tis all I can do to be so civil as not to let them see they trouble me. This may be your disease. However, remember you have promised me to be careful of yourself, and that if I secure what you have entrusted me with, you will answer for the rest. Be this our bargain, then and look that you give me as good an account of one as I shall give you of t'other. In earnest I was strangely vexed to see myself forced to disappoint you so, and felt your trouble and my own too. How often I have wished myself with you, though but for a day, for an hour! I would have given all the time I am to spend here for it with all my heart. You could not but have laughed if you had seen me last night. My brother and Mr. Gibson were talking by the fire, and I sat by, but as no part of the company. Amongst other things, which I did not at all mind, they fell into a discourse of flying, and both agreed it was very possible to find out a way that people might fly like birds, and dispatch their journeys. So I, that had not said a word all night, started up at that, and desired they would say a little more on it, for I had not marked the beginning, but instead of that they both fell into so violent a laughing that I should appear so much concerned in such an art. But they little knew of what use it might have been to me. Yet I saw you last night, but t'was in a dream, and before I could say a word to you, or you to me, the disorder my joy to see you had put me into awakened me. Just now I was interrupted, too, and called away to entertain two dumb gentlemen. You may imagine whether I was pleased to leave my writing to you for their company. They have made such a tedious visit, too, and I am so tired with making of signs and tokens for everything I had to say. Good God! How do those that live with them always? They are brothers, and the eldest is a baronet has a good estate, a wife, and three or four children. He was my servant heretofore, and comes to see me still for old love's sake. 
but if he could have made me mistress of the world I could not have had him. And yet I'll swear he has nothing to be disliked in him but his want of tongue, which in a woman might have been a virtue. I sent you a part of Cyrus last week, where you will meet with one Doralise in the story of Abrada and Ponte. The whole story is very good, but the humour makes the best part of it. I am of her opinion in most things that she says in her character of Lonette Homme that she is in search of, and her resolution of receiving no heart that had been offered to anybody else. Pray tell me how you like her, and what fault you find in my Lady Carlyle's letter. Methinks the hand and the style both show her a great person, and tis writ in the way that's now affected by all that pretend to wit and good breeding. Only I am a little scandalised to confess that she uses that word faithful. She that never knew how to be so in her life. I have sent you my picture because you wished for it. But pray let it not presume to disturb my Lady Sunderland's. Put it in some corner where no eyes may find it out but yours, to whom it is only intended. Tis not a very good one but the best I shall ever have drawn of me, for, as my lady says, my time for pictures is past, and therefore I have always refused to part with this, because I was sure the next would be a worse. There is a beauty in youth that every one has once in their lives, and I remember my mother used to say there was never anybody that was not deformed, but were handsome to some reasonable degree, once between fourteen and twenty. It must hang with the light on the left hand of it, and you may keep it, if you please, till I bring you the original. But then I must borrow it, for tis no more mine, if you like it, because my brother is often bringing people into my closet where it hangs, to show them other pictures that are there, and if he miss this long thence, twould trouble his jealous head. You are not the first that has told me I knew better what quality I would not have in a husband than what I would, but it was more pardonable in them. I thought you had understood better what kind of person I like than anybody else could possibly have done, and therefore did not think it necessary to make you that description too. Those that I reckoned up were only such as I could not be persuaded to have upon no terms, though I had never seen such a person in my life as Mr. Temple. Not but that all those may make very good husbands to some women, but they are so different from my humour that tis not possible we should ever agree. For though it might be reasonably enough expected that I should conform mine to theirs, to my shame be it spoken, I could never do it. And I have lived so long in the world, and so much at my own liberty, that whosoever has me must be content to take me as they find me, without hope of ever making me other than I am. I cannot so much as disguise my humour. When it was designed that I should have had Sir Juss, my brother used to tell he was confident that, with all his wisdom, any woman that had wit and discretion might make an ass of him, and govern him as she pleased. I could not deny that possibly it might be so, but twas that I was sure I could never do. And though tis likely I should have forced myself to so much compliance as was necessary for a reasonable wife, 
yet farther than that no design could ever have carried me, and I could not have flattered him into a belief that I admired him to gain more than he and all his generation are worth. "'Tis such an ease, as you say, not to be solicitous to please others. In earnest, I am no more concerned whether people think me handsome or ill-favoured, whether they think I have wit or that I have none, than I am whether they think my name Elizabeth or Dorothy. I would do nobody no injury, but I should never design to please above one, and that one I must love too, or else I should think it a trouble, and consequently not do it. I have made a general confession to you. Will you give me absolution? Methinks you should, for you are not much better by your own relation. Therefore tis easiest to forgive one another. When you hear anything from your father, remember that I am his humble servant, and much concerned in his good health. I am your faithful friend and servant, Dorothy Osborne. Letter 38 Sir, you would have me say something of my coming. Alas, how fain I would have something to say, but I know no more than you saw in that letter I sent you. How willingly would I tell you anything that I thought would please you, but I confess I do not like to give uncertain hopes, because I do not care to receive them. And I thought there was no need of saying I would be sure to take the first occasion, and that I waited with impatience for it, because I hoped you had believed all that already. And so you do, I am sure. Say what you will, you cannot but know my heart enough to be assured that I wish myself with you, for my own sake as well as yours. Tis rather that you love to hear me say it often than that you doubt it, for I am no dissembler. I could not cry for a husband that were indifferent to me, like your cousin. No, nor for a husband that I loved, neither. I think twould break my heart sooner than make me shed a tear. "'Tis ordinary griefs that make me weep. "'In earnest, you cannot imagine how often I have been told "'that I had too much franchise in my humour, "'and that t'was a point of good breeding to disguise handsomely. "'But I answered still for myself "'that t'was not to be expected I should be exactly bred, "'that had never seen a court since I was capable of anything. "'Yet I know so much that my Lady Carlyle would take it very ill if you should not let her get the point of honour. Tis all she aims at, to go beyond everybody in compliment. But are you not afraid of giving me a strong vanity, with telling me I write better than the most extraordinary person in the world? If I had not the sense to understand that the reason why you like my letters better is only because they are kinder than hers, such a word might have undone me. But my Lady Isabella, that speaks and looks and sings and plays, and all so prettily, why cannot I say that she is free from faults, as her sister believes her? No, I am afraid she is not, and sorry that those she has are so generally known. My brother did not bring them for an example, but I did, and made him confess she had better have married a beggar than that beast with all his estate. She cannot be excused, but certainly they run a strange hazard that have such husbands as makes them think they cannot be more undone whatever course they take. 
Oh, tis ten thousand pities. I remember she was the first woman that ever I took notice of for extremely handsome, and in earnest she was then the loveliest lady that could be looked on, I think. But what should she do with beauty now? Were I as she, I should hide myself from all the world. I should think all people that looked on me read it in my face, and despised me in their hearts, and at the same time they made me a leg, or spoke civilly to me, I should believe they did not think I deserved their respect. I'll tell you who he urged for an example, though, my Lord Pembroke and my lady, who, they say, are upon parting after all his passion for her, and his marrying her against the consent of all his friends. But to that I answered that, though he pretended great kindness he had for her, I never heard of much she had for him, and knew she married him merely for advantage. Nor is she a woman of that discretion as to do all that might become her, when she must do it rather as things fit to be done than as things she inclined to. Besides that, what with a spleenatic side and a chemical head, he is but an odd body himself. But is it possible what they say, that my Lord Leicester and my lady are in great disorder, and that after forty years' patience he has now taken up the cudgels and resolved to venture for the mastery? Methinks he wakes out of his long sleep like a froward child that wrangles and fights with all that comes near it. They say he has turned away almost every servant in the house, and left her at Penshurst to digest it as she can. What an age do we live in, where tis a miracle if in ten couples that are married two of them live so as not to publish to the world that they cannot agree. I begin to be of your opinion of him that, when the Roman Church first propounded whether it were not convenient for priests not to marry, said that it might be convenient enough, but sure it was not our Saviour's intention, for he commanded that all should take up their cross and follow him, and for his part he was confident there was no such cross as a wife. This is an ill doctrine for me to preach, but to my friends I cannot but confess that I am afraid much of the fault lies in us for I have observed that formerly, in great families, the men seldom disagree, but the women are always scolding. And tis most certain that let the husband be what he will, if the wife have but patience, which sure becomes her best, the disorder cannot be great enough to make a noise. His anger alone, when it meets with nothing that resists it, cannot be loud enough to disturb the neighbours and such a wife may be said to do as a kinswoman of ours that had a husband who was not always himself, and when he was otherwise his humour was to rise in the night, and with two bedstaves labour on the table an hour together. She took care every night to lay a great cushion upon the table for him to strike on, that nobody might hear him, and so discover his madness. But tis a sad thing when all one's happiness is only that the world does not know you are miserable. For my part, I think it were very convenient that all such as intend to marry should live together in the same house some years of probation, and if in all that time they never disagreed, 
they should then be permitted to marry, if they please. But how few would do it then! I do not remember that I ever saw or heard of any couple that were bred up so together, as many you know are, that are designed for one another from children, but they always disliked one another extremely, parted if it were left in their choice. If people proceeded with this caution, the world would end sooner than is expected, I believe, and because, with all my wariness, tis not impossible but I may be caught, nor likely that I should be wiser than anybody else, to a best I think that I said no more on this point. What would I give to know that sister of yours that is so good at discovering? Sure she is excellent company. She has reason to laugh at you when you would have persuaded her the moss was sweet. I remember Jane brought some of it to me to ask me if I thought it had no ill smell, and whether she might venture to put it in the box or not. I told her as I thought she could not put a more innocent thing there, for I did not find it had any smell at all. Besides, I was willing it should do me some service in requital for the pains I had taken for it. My niece and I wandered through some eight hundred acres of wood in search of it, to make rocks and strange things that her head is full of, and she admires it more than you did. If she had known I had consented it should have been used to fill up a box, she would have condemned me extremely. I told Jane that you liked her present and she, I find, is resolved to spoil your compliment, and make you confess at last that they are not worth the eating. She threatens to send you more, but you would forgive her if you saw how she baits me every day to go to London. All that I can say will not satisfy her. When I urge, as tis true, that there is a necessity of my stay here, she grows furious, cries you will die with melancholy, and confounds me so with stories of your ill-humour that I'll swear I think I should go merely to be at quiet, if it were possible, though there were no other reason for it. But I hope tis not so ill as she would have me believe it, though I know your humour is strangely altered from what it was, and am sorry to see it. Melancholy must needs do you more hurt than to another to whom it may be natural, as I think it is to me. Therefore, if you loved me, you would take heed on it. Can you believe that you are dearer to me than the whole world beside, and yet neglect yourself? If you do not, you wrong a perfect friendship. And if you do, you must consider my interest in you, and preserve yourself to make me happy. Promise me this, or I shall haunt you worse than she does me. Scribble how you please, so you make your letter long enough. You see, I give you good example. Besides, I can assure you, we do perfectly agree, if you receive not satisfaction but from my letters. I have none but what yours give me. Your faithful friend and servant, Dorothy Osborne. Letter 39 Sir, if want of kindness were the only crime I exempted from pardon, t'was not that I had the least apprehension you could be guilty of it, but to show you, by accepting only an impossible thing, that I accepted nothing. 
"'No, in earnest, I can fancy no such thing of you. "'Or if I could, the quarrel would be to myself. "'I should never forgive my own folly "'that let me to choose a friend that could be false. "'But I'll leave this, which is not much to the purpose, "'and tell you how, with my usual impatience, "'I expected your letter, "'and how cold it went to my heart "'to see it so short a one. "'Twas so great a pain to me "'that I am resolved you shall not feel it, "'nor can I in justice punish you "'for a fault unwillingly committed. "'If I were your enemy "'I could not use you ill "'when I saw fortune do it too, "'and in gallantry and good nature both "'I should think myself rather obliged "'to protect you from her injury, "'if it lay in my power, "'than double them upon you. "'These things considered, I believe this letter will be longer than ordinary. Kinder, I think it cannot be. I always speak my heart to you, and that is so much your friend, it never furnishes me with anything to your disadvantage. I am glad you are an admirer of Telesile as well as I. In my opinion, tis a fine lady, but I know you will pity poor Amestris strongly when you have read her story. I'll swear I cried for her when I read it first, though she were but an imaginary person. And sure, if anything of that kind can deserve it, her misfortunes may. God forgive me, I was as near laughing yesterday where I should not. Would you believe that I had the grace to go to hear a sermon upon a weekday? In earnest, tis true. A Mr. Marshall was the man that preached, but never anybody was so defeated. He is so famed that I expected rare things of him, and seriously I listened to him as if he had been St. Paul. And what do you think he told us? Why, that if there were no kings, no queens, no lords, no ladies, nor gentlemen, nor gentlewomen in the world, t'would be no loss to God Almighty at all. This we had over some forty times which made me remember it whether I would or not. The rest was much at this rate, interlarded with the prettiest odd phrases, that I had the most ado to look soberly enough for the place I was in that ever I had in my life. He does not preach so always, sure. If he does, I cannot believe his sermons will do much towards bringing anybody to heaven more than by exercising their patience. Yet I'll say that for him, he stood stoutly for tithes, though in my opinion few deserve them less than he, and it may be he would be better without them. Yet you are not convinced, you say, that to be miserable is the way to be good. To some natures I think it is not, but there are many of so careless and vain a temper that the least breath of good fortune swells them with so much pride that if they were not put in mind sometimes by a sound cross or two that they are mortal, they would hardly think it possible. And though tis a sign of a servile nature when fear produces more of reverence in us than love, yet there is more danger of forgetting oneself in a prosperous fortune than in the contrary, and affliction may be the surest, though not the pleasantest, guide to heaven. What think you? Might not I preach with Mr. Marshall for a wager? But you could fancy a perfect happiness here, you say. That is not much. Many people do so. 
but I never heard of anybody that ever had it more than in fancy, so that will not be strange if you should miss on it. One may be happy to a good degree, I think, in a faithful friend, a moderate fortune, and a retired life. Further than this, I know nothing to wish, but if there be anything beyond it, I wish it you. You did not tell me what carried you out of town in such haste. I hope the occasion was good. You must account to me for all that I lost by it. I shall expect a whole packet next week. Oh, me! I have forgot this once or twice to tell you that if it be no inconvenience to you, I could wish you would change the place of direction for my letters. Certainly that Jones knows my name, I bespoke a saddle of him once, and though it be a good while agone, yet I was so often with him about it, having much ado to make him understand how I would have it, it being of a fashion he had never seen, though sure it be common, that I am confident he has not forgot me. Besides that, upon it he got my brother's custom, and I cannot tell whether he does not use the shop still. Jane presents her humble service to you, and has sent you something in a box. "'Tis hard to imagine what she can find here to present you withal, "'and I am much in doubt whether you will not pay too dear for it "'if you discharge the carriage. "'Tis a pretty freedom she takes, but you may thank yourself. "'She thinks because you call her fellow-servant she may use you accordingly. "'I bred her better, but you have spoiled her. "'Is it true that my Lord Whitlock goes ambassador where my Lord Lyle should have gone?' I know not how he may appear in a Swedish court, but he was never meant for a courtier at home, I believe. Yet tis a gracious prince. He is often in this country, and always does us the favour to send for his fruit hither. He was making a purchase of one of the best houses in the county. I know not whether he goes on with it, but tis such a one as will not become anything less than a lord. And there is a talk as if the chancery were going down. If so, his title goes with it, I think. "'Twill be sad news for my Lord Keeble's son. "'He will have nothing left to say "'when my Lord, my father, is taken from him. "'Were it not better that I had nothing to say neither "'than that I should entertain you with such senseless things? "'I hope I am half asleep. "'Nothing else can excuse me. "'If I were quite asleep, I should say fine things to you. "'I often dream I do.' But perhaps, if I could remember them, they are no wiser than my wakening discourses. Good night. Your faithful friend and servant, Dorothy Osborne. Letter 40 Sir, that you may be at more certainty hereafter what to think, let me tell you that nothing could hinder me from writing to you as well for my own satisfaction as yours, but an impossibility of doing it. Nothing but death or a dead palsy in my hands, or something that had the same effect. I did write it, and gave it Harold, but by an accident his horse fell lame, so that he could not set out on Monday. But on Tuesday he did come to town. On Wednesday carried the letter himself, as he tells me, where twas directed, which was to Mr. Copin in Fleet Street. Twas the first time I made use of that direction. No matter, and I had not done it then, since it proves no better. 
Harold came late home on Thursday night with such an account as your boy gave you, that coming out of town the same day he came in, he had been at Fleet Street again, but there was no letter for him. I was sorry, but I did not much wonder at it, because he gave so little time, and resolved to make my best of that I had by Collins. I read it over often enough to make it equal with the longest letter that ever was writ, and pleased myself in earnest, as much as it was possible for me in the humour I was in, to think how by that time you had asked me pardon for the little reproaches you had made me, and that the kindness and length of my letter had made you amends for the trouble it had given you in expecting it. But I am not a little annoyed to find you had it not. I am very confident it was delivered, and therefore you must search where the fault lies. Were it not that you had suffered too much already, I would complain a little of you. Why should you think me so careless of anything that you were concerned in as to doubt that I had writ? Though I had received none from you, I should not have taken that occasion to revenge myself. Nay, I should have concluded you innocent, and have imagined a thousand ways how it might happen, rather than have suspected your want of kindness. Why should not you be as just to me? But I will not chide. It may be, as long as we have been friends, you do not know me so well yet as to make an absolute judgment of me. But if I know myself at all, if I am capable of being anything, tis a perfect friend. Yet I must chide, too. Why did you get such a cold? Good God, how careless you are of a life that, by your own confession, I have told you makes all the happiness of mine. Tis unkindly done. What is left for me to say, when that will not prevail with you? Or how can you persuade me to a cure of myself, when you refuse to give me the example? I have nothing in the world that gives me the least desire of preserving myself, but the opinion I have you would not be willing to lose me. And yet, if you saw with what caution I live, at least to what I did before, you would reproach it to yourself sometimes, and might grant, perhaps, that you have not got the advantage of me in friendship so much as you imagine. What, besides your consideration, could oblige me to live and lose all the rest of my friends thus one after another? Sure I am not insensible, nor very ill-natured, and yet I'll swear I think I do not afflict myself half so much as another would do that had my losses. I pay nothing of sadness to the memory of my poor brother, but I presently disperse it, with thinking what I owe in thankfulness, that tis not you I mourn for. Well, give me no more occasions to complain of you. You know not what may follow. Here was Mr. Freeman yesterday that made me a very kind visit, and said so many fine things to me that I was confounded with his civilities, and had nothing to say for myself. I could have wished then that he had considered me less and my niece more. But if you continue to use me thus in earnest, I'll not be so much her friend hereafter. Methinks I see you laugh at all my threatenings, 
and not without reason. Mr. Freeman, you believe, is designed for somebody that deserves him better. I think so, too, and am not sorry for it. And you have reason to believe I never can be other than your faithful friend and servant, Dorothy Osborne. End of section 8